Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, ahead of April Fool's Day, we take a closer look at what makes us gullible and why. And we get some tips on the ingredients of a good prank. We speak to a Quebec doctor who is suffering from the after effects of COVID-19 more than a year after she contracted the virus to find out more about long COVID, the symptoms and the impacts. And we find out why healthcare systems across the country will have to do more to prepare for what is sometimes called the post-pandemic pandemic, that is, long COVID. But first, the Transportation Safety Board released its long-awaited report into the fatal derailment of a Canadian Pacific freight train near Field, BC in 2019 today. We speak to the mother of one of the three workers who died that night when the train derailed at high speed after it rolled out of control down a steep hill. We talk about what it could have been done to prevent the tragedy. And we ask a former TSB train accident investigator whether our rail network is safer today than it was on that tragic night. Well, today the Transportation Safety Board released a long-awaited report into that fatal derailment of Canadian Pacific Train 301. It found that a combination of inadequate training, aging brakes, and freezing conditions contributed to that fatal derailment. Here's the TSB Director of Operations Services, Dan Holbrook. The main factors were the passage of time, the extreme cold temperatures, and the leakage of brake cylinder pressure. Since handbrakes had not been applied, once the leakage of brake cylinder pressure reached a critical threshold, the train began to move on its own. Well, the report says the train had started down one of the most challenging stretches of track on the continent when it exceeded the speed limit. So the crew hit the brakes, not the handbrakes, that wasn't needed. They hit the brakes, stopping on the hill. A relief crew. The three men I mentioned earlier were brought in and arrived about 2.5 or two and a half hours after the train had stopped. In that time, its air brake system had started to leak compressed air, according to the report, reducing the capacity to hold that train on that steep hill. As the relief crew took over, the train, which had been parked then for three hours in frigid temperatures, minus 25 or so, began to move forward, accelerating uncontrolled down that steep section of track. It reached an estimated 85 kilometers an hour before two locomotives and 99 cars left the track, plunging the locomotives into a river. TSB Chair Kathy Fox says it was a perfect storm of issues. It reinforces the nature that accidents happen because of a complex convergence of a number of factors, any one of which, if they didn't happen, could have prevented the accident. As I would have to say that way, it's, it's, um, it's sad. Three people lost their lives. And we know that more can be done to prevent others. Well, the report did find that CP train crews were actively reporting the safety hazards related to poor train braking performance on Field Hill, where it took place, and that those reports were closed without conducting a risk assessment and with insufficient action taken by CP to address the issue. It also finds that uncontrolled movements of rolling stock continues to pose a hazard to rail operations in this country aimed at making cold weather train operations safer through mountainous rail territory. Specifically, we are calling for enhanced test standards and time-based maintenance for brake cylinders on freight cars operating on steep descending grades in cold ambient temperatures. Well, those are the recommendations from the TSB from Chair Kathy Fox. Now, the TSB, again, has made a number of recommendations to prevent similar accidents in cold weather in the future, including the use of those automatic parking brakes, more maintenance and improved training. Keep in mind, though, those are just recommendations. We can't change the past. We, we can't undo what's happened. 
But what we can do is make recommendations so these sorts of things don't happen again. And, and, and that's why we're making the recommendation about automatic, automatic parking brakes, because it is a physical defense. It doesn't rely on, on following rules or interpretation of procedures. Again, that is TSB Chair Kathy Fox today at a press conference following the release of that report into the fatal derailment of uh, CP Freight Train 301 near Field, BC in 2019. One of the men killed that night was 33-year-old conductor Dylan Parody. He was a husband, a father of two young girls. He came from a long line of railway workers, generations, including his dad. Well, joining me now is Dylan's mom, Pam Fraser. Pam, first, thank you for being here, and my condolences again to you and your family. Thank you so much. Tell me a bit about, about Dylan, because I know his father worked on the rails, he worked on the rails. Tell me a bit about, about him and, and, his, and his excitement about this job. Well, you know, I'll tell you that when Dylan was young, um, it's seemed, I don't think he was maybe 10, 11, even 12 before he quit saying, he'd say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he'd say, I don't want to grow up. And when about 11 or 12 is when he started uh, saying, I want to work on the train like my dad. And it never, ever varied. It never changed. He never said another different thing. So when he was old enough to uh, go to college to become a railroader, that's what he did. But he comes from a long line of railroaders. You see, we, our town was built by CPR, a scriber, Ontario. Um, his, his father, of course, his uncle, his father's father, um, grandfather, great uncle, that whole line. He had a, um, his father's um, mother's first husband was killed. As, as a CP railroader on the, on the railroad. Um, then so you've got he, my side of the family. I've got, we've got generations, uh, maybe six or seven generations of CP railroaders. So he had, rail, he had trains in his blood. Trains in his blood, yeah. He must have been excited then about this job, but, but it, 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 it's a tough job, the one he was doing. He, he, did he ever talk about the risks or what he was seeing? He would, um, Dylan had a great sense of humor and he and I have much the same sense of humor and he made, he managed to make, uh, make a joke out of, out of very many things. And it helped when his, de- in his delivery of stuff that may have happened, uh, cause he was in the yard for a long time as well, um, to try to relay to us scary stuff that might've that might have occurred. He used humor to do that. With his father, though, he could speak one-on-one and, and real with his father. For myself and uh, his wife, he didn't want to worry us. Because yeah. he was concerned. There were concerns. Oh, yes, absolutely. Definitely. Well, you know, they're all. he was always concerned about the um, corner cutting that's done and it's it's expected of you hunter harrison came in with precision railroading and changed everything and um keith creel loves that way of doing as well he prides himself on that method what what it does is um the safety 
yeah. really climbs. I, I guess specifically tell me a bit about you know, that night or when he was heading out, what were the concerns that he had going out to do, say something like Field Hill, which is known to be a dangerous spot? Well, something he didn't tell us was that um, Andrew's trip uh, before, uh, the, his, the trip right before this, the one that killed him, he had a uh, runaway train then. He barely got the brakes involved and was able to live through that. That's why his uh, uh, incident report was still in his is um, still on him. He didn't get a chance to file it. So Dylan uh, was had called home, talked about the cold. It was miserable there. The power was out. Um, everybody was freezing their butts off. And then you got to put your phone away when it's time to go to work. You're not allowed to use your phone. So we didn't hear any more from him. Well, when we come back, we'll talk about today's TSB report. That's next. Well, I'm back with Pam Fraser, mother of Dylan Parody, one of the three men killed when a CP freight train derailed near Field, BC in 2019, a father of two, a husband. The Transportation Safety Board released its report into the incident today. When you read the report today, do you still fundamentally believe that this was an accident that could have been prevented, a tragedy that could have been prevented, and why? This should never, ever have happened. So it was like a perfect storm, really, I suppose. So many things conspired to make sure it was going to happen. I think that it is the poor safety culture of CP that is at the crux of it, the, the crux of how this could have happened in the first place. And for that reason, absolutely, it could have been prevented. As a matter of fact, in um, safety psychology, there's a saying, there are no accidents in heavy industry. It's, there's always a way to perform work without somebody getting hurt. In this case, if you look at now that the TSB report is very clear, everyone involved in the, the original crew, for instance, was woefully um, unskilled. At or undertrained, right? Or undertrained, right. Um, what would you like, now that the report is out, what would you like to see done? Now that it's out, I'd like the powers that be, so that would be Transport Canada and uh, the Minister of Transportation, of our, it would be Prime Minister Trudeau and his caucus. I would like them all to take this very, very seriously for once. I'm, and I'm, I mean for once. And put action, put some meat behind the TSB recommendations and have some accountability. We've really, if with no accountability, there will never be motivation for change. And because the TSB re recommendations are simply that, their recommendations. And in fact, they were very clear. The history of 
uh, CP rail in acting, acting on the recommendation is also poor. So how do you make, how do you, if these recommendations will help save lives even, and um, how do you make CP rail put them into effect? I was thinking, they mentioned that uh, automatic um, parking brake. And I told the two people, TSB agents that were here, that for me, I can, I am imagining, I'm, I'm daydreaming about um, Dylan's brothers and sisters, his railroad brothers and sisters, someday saying if they implemented this park break thing, because the TSB just thought it would be a real game changer, they were touting uh, its merits right, left, and center. And I, I daydreamed about railroaders saying what a boon these things were to them, that how much safer they might be with the automatic parking brakes. And what a shame that Dylan, Andrew, and Daniel had to be killed for, for us to to be able to have this safety feature, but we've got it and we're grateful. I was daydreaming about stuff like that because it really is for me, I, I must have accountability and I must have uh, something positive come of this. It cannot, you can't kill these three wonderful, fantastic men and get away with it scot-free again. That would have to be Dylan's legacy, you think? I want that to be Dylan's legacy. I want Dylan's legacy to be such that there are no more private corporate police, that an RCMP investigation would immediately start into an, an event like this, that CP rail, any rail could not investigate itself and exonerate itself. And it would have then have to be accountable to its safety record. Dylan, uh, Dylan, Daniel, and Andrew could be alive today. Andrew was alive his trip before by the skin of his teeth, mind you, but he, he was. These, there's been so many of these near misses and tragedies and derailments and spills they've had plenty of years to get it right instead they continue to chase the bottom line of corporate greed and precision railroading efficiency and we still have this i wanted to ask you then for listeners who never knew dylan what you remember about him what you'd like people to know I'd like them to know that he was, above all else, a really, a really kind, gentle, honest person. He was funny, 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 great sense of humor, um, fiercely dedicated to his family. 
And I want them to know that he stands behind me, patting my shoulder, telling me, you can do it, Mom. Pam, thank you so much. And again, my condolences. Thank you very much. In the last half hour, we spoke with Pam Fraser, mom of Dylan Parody, one of the three men killed when that CP train, freight train, derailed uh, at high speed on a steep slope near Field, BC in February of 2019. That, uh, of course, was the subject of a Transportation Safety Board report released today. Uh, it found that a combination of inadequate training, aging breaks in freezing conditions uh, contributed to the failed der- derailment. The TSB has made a number of recommendations to prevent similar accidents from happening in the future, including the use of automatic parking brakes, better training, more maintenance. Today in Parliament, the NDP's transport critic, Taylor Backrack, asked the Transportation Minister, Omar Al-Gabra, what more the government will do to protect rail workers' lives. Honourable Member for Skeena, Bolton Valley. Mr. Speaker, on a cold winter day in 2019, Dylan Paratus, Daniel Waldenberger Balmer, and Andrew Dockrell climbed into a locomotive parked on a steep hill near Field, British Columbia. Minutes later, the brakes failed, the train ran away, and the three men plunged to their deaths. Now, the DSB just released a scathing report on that accident, saying, among other things, that CP Rail didn't listen to the safety concerns coming from their own workers. This government's hands-off approach to rail safety is killing railroaders. When will it stand up to big rail corporations and protect workers' lives? The Honourable Minister of Transport. Our thoughts continue to be with the families and friends of those who lost their lives on that tragic accident. We thank Transportation Safety Board of Canada for completing a thorough investigation. Their investigation report was released today. We're going to examine it, Mr. Speaker. We're going to act upon it, and we're going to build on the interim measures that we put immediately after the accident. Mr. Speaker, I want to assure my colleague and every member of this House and every Canadian, safety is our top uh, priority, and we will continue to do everything we can to maintain the highest level of safety here in Canada. That was NDP transport critic Taylor Backrack and Transport Minister Omar Algalbra in Parliament today discussing that TSB report. Of course, actions will always speak louder than words, and this case included. CP, for its part, released a statement today, as I mentioned earlier, contesting the TSB's findings. They say, given the gravity of this incident and the tragic loss of life, it was extremely disappointing that the TSB misrepresented the facts at today's news conference and misunderstood key facts about the incident in its report. Uh, it says CP remains the industry leader in technology-driven train inspections with a decade-long track record of reduced train accidents and improved train performance. Throughout the investigation, CP's fully cooperated with the TSB, and CP strongly believes that the real and substantive safety improvements are only achieved when fact-based and objective analysis is undertaken to truly understand the causes and contributing factors of an incident like the field derailment. So all that being said, and to make a little more sense of it all, joining me now is someone who knows about these kinds of investigations. He's a rail safety consultant and former TSB director of rail accident investigations. Joining me from Ottawa is Ian Nash. Ian Nash, thank you for your time tonight. You're welcome. So tell me a bit about what this report had to say, and is it what you were expecting to see? Okay, yeah, well, uh, briefly, essentially, the report said that the uh, 
the train that ran away and derailed in the Kicking Horse River uh, basically ran away because the air brake pressure had uh, basically, there was no air brake pressure anymore in the, in the train and it started to run away and the crew couldn't stop it. And uh, they, uh, when you ride, when you ride a train, I mean, you either jump out or you ride it down. They knew they were running away, but um, it's a tough choice to make when you, when you go down a hill like that. Um, and the reason that it ran away in the first place was basically it was a grain train. A lot of the grain cars are very old. Uh, they hadn't been very well maintained, so they were leaking air because of the cold weather. And the colder, colder the weather, the more the air leaks out with, around the gasket areas and the brake valves and brake cylinders. And, um, and so... Uh, although they put on what's called retainer brakes to, to essentially have some kind of control of braking on the, on the train. It just wasn't enough. And the train route rolled, rolled away on its own, rolled down a 2.2% grade, which is very steep for railway mountain grade and uh, derailed. Uh, according to the report, then what did the TSB find were the facts or the mitigating factors in this accident, in this crash, and what would have had to have been done to try to prevent them? Well, the contributing factors were, uh, it's a very heavy train. 15,000 tons. Many of the cars were in really bad shape in terms of air, air brake leakage. And uh, the train was going down one of the steepest hills in the country. And uh, so what could have been done? Uh, the equipment could have been better maintained. Um, the operating crews could have been better trained. And the supervisors could have supervised better in terms of making decisions on how many brakes to put after the train went into emergency emergency because it was running out of air so fast. Uh, and then it, when it goes into emergency, all the brakes go on and the train stops. But then the air, because it was so cold and the air was leaking so much, the air, air brakes in the cylinders leaked off and, uh, and it started to roll away. But uh, essentially, first of all, if the cars have been very well maintained, it might not have been an issue. Second of all, given you've got those cars, if handbrakes have been applied right away when the train went into emergency, uh, and third of all, there could have been a, a dialogue between the train crew and traffic control and the roadmaster to make the right decision on how they proceed from their stop position at the top of the hill to get down to field. And I think the idea there, the best idea would have been to just hold the train with all the handbrakes on, wait till the morning when the weather got warmer and then it'd be easier to get the air brake, brake pressure back to, to where you want it to be. And, uh, and things might have happened in a positive sense. Ian, you investigated rail accidents over the years. How much of those factors were things that were already known prior to that night? Um, well, I mean, the railway knew about the... Uh, they knew about the condition of the train, but I don't think they connected all the dots. Um, training and supervision, you know, the railways like to make a lot of money for their shareholders. And I guess if they can cut down a little bit and a little bit and nothing happens, then things, things may be perceived as being okay. Um, the railways, there, there's a regulation called the safety management system regulations that railways are supposed to adhere to. And, it's, and whenever you make operational changes, and like, for example, you get heavier trains and you're operating in the winter and uh you've got and crews are reporting problems going down a hill for example you you're supposed to look at the patterns 
as railway management say, okay, we've we got issues here. What are we going to do about it? And it's not clear at all that the railway did any of that. When you, that being said, then, um, was there anything in this report uh, today that came as a surprise to you in terms, of, in terms of either the findings or the recommendations? And do you think that what's contained in the report really is a step in the right direction to make sure that this won't happen again? Yeah, there's no big surprises. Uh, the big disappointment to me was the safety management system regulations, which have been around for 21 years now, and uh, clearly they're not working well. I know they do well, work well in some companies, and I think VRL does a pretty good job of that in Canada and in Europe. Uh, there's some pretty good railways and, uh, and countries that have efficient operating regulations for, for risk assessment by the railways. Um, I guess I was surprised at the condition of the rail cars. I didn't think they'd be that bad and uh, surprised at the, how fast the air leaked off from all the, all the basically aged gaskets. Um, and I, I think the only other thing is cold weather operations. I mean, you've got to be so careful. It's, uh, with regards to train security and train operation, it seems that that, uh, that wasn't taken into account or consideration. I don't think the gravity of the situation was considered uh, as bad as it actually was on the day of the accident. I know that uh, there have been advisories issued at least earlier to try to make some change, necessary changes. There are more recommendations in this report today. Um, do you think this goes far enough in making sure that these issues are corrected? You know what? If all the recommendations are accepted and acted upon, I, I'd say it'll be a heck of a lot better than it was in 2019. But um, unfortunately, uh, railway companies quite often are hesitant to implement any uh, any improvements that will cost a lot of money. And um, so even though the recommendations are good, it may take an awfully long while to get them all implemented and acted upon. What are the... What are the key ones here? If so, the, so listeners understand, what are the key recommendations that have been made in terms of trying to improve uh, the safety of these trains, specifically in an area as dangerous as Field Hill? Well, I like, I like the one about uh, implementing an automa- automatic parking brake on freight cars, which is, which is great because the way handbrakes are applied to rail cars now, and that would be like a, a replacement for that to a certain extent, uh, the size of the person, the strength of the person depends on that, how well you can apply the handbrake. But if you have a, an automatic parking brake that's actuated from, um, from the head-end locomotive, it's all automatic and it's the same uh, pressure applied to all the cars. So, I mean, it's, that, and it saves a ton of time too. And that technology is there and it's been there for quite a while. But, um, like a lot of other things, I guess, People do their benefit cost analyses. They look at shareholder demands and that sort of thing. And they, uh, you know, if you could, if you're going to make an improvement, make sure the improvement is more than the equivalent level of safety for what you had before. You know, better. And um, I think that that would help a lot. Uh, order the safety management system, uh, but then you've got to act on it, right? And uh, the railways really have to pull up their socks and do a better job of applying that regulation. It's a good regulation, but it's, uh, in my opinion, a lot of the railways just pay lip service to it. And um, I didn't say anything about training and supervision, and they didn't really get into that from what I 
read, but maybe I missed it. Um, you know, I think you've got to situations like Field Hills, places like Field Hills, you know, it's, it's an important part of the link in the, in the rail network across the Rockies, but uh, you've really got to take it seriously how you, how you look after the train crews that go through there and train them and supervise them. And, um, you know, it didn't look like, uh, it didn't look like uh, the operation worked well, the way, uh, the way a relief crew came in and so on and so forth. I'm speaking with Ian Nash. He's a rail safety consultant and a former TSB director of rail accident investigations. After this, we'll talk a bit more about uh, whether or not the report today, and we've already spoken about how it has to be enacted, but how much safer are trains today than they were on that tragic night back in 2019? We'll be back with that. I'm back with Ian Nash, a rail safety consultant and former TSB director of rail accident investigations. He's speaking to me tonight from Ottawa. Uh, Ian, I, I guess one of the, the main questions is, it's, it's you know, three years later, more than three years later, are the trains rolling around tonight any safer? It's warmer, obviously, but is this kind of accident not likely to happen again, given the changes that have been made since that night? Um, I'd say it's marginally safer. Um, I'd I like to see a lot more action taken by the railways and the regulator to, to have a really nice level of comfort of things going in the right direction. And some of the recommendations from the TSB, they're going to take time to act upon. So there's going to be a there's going to be a gap for a while, I think. Wherein lies the problem then in terms of recommendations made after what was clearly uh, clearly an accident where they found many causes? Wherein lies the problem then with getting these recommendations instituted quickly? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, they're usually made to the Minister of Transport. The Minister has to respond to the recommendations and have to get comments from the railways on what they think of the recommendations. Um, not one of the recommendations is binding. That's one of the parts of the TSB Act. They're recommendations, but it doesn't mean you have to do this. And so, you know, it, it takes time and sometimes it takes way too much time to get them implemented. Because as you were mentioning, some of these recommendations go back to earlier earlier tragedies, such as Lac Megantic. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, securement of handbrakes and so on and so forth. And, you know, you, there, I mean, Megantic had, I don't know, between 14 and 28 causes, you know, contributing factors anyway. And um, But there was one, there was the locomotive equipment was terrible. The track was in terrible condition. And uh, that uh, took a long time for the crew to get over the road. Um, didn't do proper risk analysis, um, didn't train, for, you know. But, so, I mean, training and supervision is always an issue uh, in communications. Uh, equipment condition shouldn't always be an issue, but in the big accidents, it can be. I think sometimes for people who don't work in this industry, and we see these massive trains go by, these huge freight trains, hundreds of more than 100 cars, the assumption is that there is the utmost care to make sure that something this large doesn't run away. And it sounds like that isn't always necessarily the case, although I imagine intentions are good. Uh, I mean, these are, these are heavy, dangerous, giant things moving through tricky territory and i think the assumption always was well they must be doing everything they possibly can to make sure nothing goes wrong and it, i get the sense from the report and from what you're saying that that isn't necessarily the case that's right and uh you know you can say in the case of the track condition the track was in great condition but in terms of uh, the actual train the train was not in good condition whatsoever and the, well, the weather was really uh, really foul that day 
And you can get onto prairies, and I think there's been a couple of, uh, well, that's a few years ago now, but uh, there's some crude oil derailments and explosions. And there, it was just an issue. The train was in okay shape, but it was going too fast for, uh, for a, a bad condition track. And, uh, so the track failed and the trains derailed and there were explosions. But uh, So you, you've got to keep your track up, up to speed, up to snuff, I should say, in, in condition. You could keep equipment in good condition. And you've got to keep your train crews in good condition and your, you know, your road masters, your tra- train controllers, so forth. Everyone's got to be re- well-rested and well-trained and, uh, and supervised. Uh, so any one of those three things goes wrong, you've potentially got a problem. So, Ian, then, all that taken into consideration, what is then the lesson to be learned from this specific tragedy? Well, I think the lesson is really that as they exist now, the safety management systems are pretty weak because that hazard should have been recognized. Uh, runaways down the old hill have been seen before. Uh, so what's changed? Uh, if, it, if it's nothing, well, why not? Um, and I guess for me, the lesson is it's nice that the TSB is recommending a new technology, automatic parking brakes, and it sounds wonderful. I just hope it gets implemented. But uh, it's so slow that new technology is implemented on the railways. If the railways can't immediately make any money on it, they're very slow, very reluctant. Could this happen again? Um, I won't say it couldn't. Um, have the measures been taken so far? Are they better than they were at the time of the uh, derailment? Yes. Uh, are they enough? I'm not sure. Ian Nash. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate your insight. Thank you. You're welcome, Ben. Well, in many parts of the world, it is already April Fool's Day. So for the next 12 hours, at least, beware of what you read. I always fall for something every year. I can't tell. These days, it's so hard to tell because sometimes you'll read something scientific and think that can't be true. It's April Fool's Day. Then you realize it is true. Uh, there are some, it's in Australia, obviously, it's already been April Fool's Day. It's already over in Australia. It's supposed to end at noon, by the way. Um, so today, I mean, a lot, it's usually marketing related now. So McDonald's put out a sweet and sour Sunday, uh, that sounded awful. Uh, there was another one that combined Weetabix and beans, baked beans that sounded awful and, but they always look quite real and they're always funny. So there's a few, uh, beware of those tomorrow. So I was thinking either, if you've seen any April fool's pranks already online that you think are good and wouldn't mind sharing them with me, 877-399-9898. That's 877-399-9898. Or tell me about a good April fool's prank that you've either had pulled on you or have orchestrated. Uh, Obviously you don't have that much time if you're texting it, uh, but just a few lines about what it was and how well it worked. Um, I've honestly never been, I don't know why I've never been an April Fool's person. I've probably been hyper vigilant on April Fool's Day, so people don't bother. Either that or I'm boring, therefore they don't bother doing it, doing it for me. One of the two, I'm not going to ask. Uh, no one needs to tell me, I don't need to know. But 877-399-9898 if you want to share either something interesting you've seen online. Australia, as I mentioned, already has some of their stuff out today. Um, share some of the stuff you've seen online or tell me about a good April Fool's prank that you've fallen for, that you've orchestrated. And uh, we'll share those with you through this hour when we look at April Fool's Day. So I was trying to figure out some ways to talk about April Fool's Day without you know, necessarily talking about gags or the things we've all heard about before. I always love 
love, you know, I do love, love a good April Fool's joke. And the marketing companies obviously do a really good job with them uh, these days. Uh, but I wanted to find out a bit more about why we fall for them. So I went looking for someone to talk about this. Um, you know, as the old joke goes, gullible isn't in the dictionary. I, I, and somehow in this cover, you know, apparently that was once true, a way, way back. It was culpable, not gullible. But anyway, it is in the dictionary now. But as we head towards April Fool's Day, I did want to take a closer look at what makes us fall for things that either aren't true or at least aren't as they appear. Now, gullibility is an odd one because growing up, you always had that one friend who would, who would believe everything, right? Um, and I think over time, you stop, you at least stop trying to prank people like that, either because it's unkind. Um, and, and honestly, it, it, you know, it doesn't, it just isn't much fun when you're past the age of like 10 or 11. Um, but what about the rest of us? You know, gullibility can be can be a tough thing because on April Fool's Day, it's fine if you fall for an article about something that you don't really, it's irrelevant to some extent. But what about the other 364 days of the year where it can be a little more problematic if you fall uh, for something? And what better person to do that than to explain gullibility than my next guest? Stephen Greenspan is the author of a book called, believe it or not, The Annals of Gullibility, Why We Are Duped and How to avoid it. Stephen Greenspan, thanks for being here. Thank you, Ben. Pleasure. So tell me a bit about, about just even the science or lack of science in, of, of gullibility. I understand it's still very much a work in progress in understanding why we choose to believe what we choose to believe. Well, gullibility was actually uh, talked about a lot more in the 19th century. And uh, I sort of, I can't say I discovered it, but uh, because it's it's been an uh, important theme in uh, literature, but not so much in social sciences. So I started writing about it, uh, oh, uh, 15 or so years ago when I got involved in a criminal case. I'm a forensic, I'm a psychologist. I often testify in criminal cases and the particular defendant I was evaluating uh, was, um, had a brain uh, had brain damage and was described by one of his relatives as the most gullible person on the planet. And I began to realize that it's a big problem in people with various kinds of disabilities. And so I started writing about it. Then, of course, I've realized it's a big problem for everybody, including myself. I happen to be pretty gullible. Yeah. I mean, what, how do you define, uh, when you set out to research something, how would you define gullibility? Well, I define it as a tendency to be duped or fooled or tricked, manipulated. And uh, it's related to uh, credulity, which has to do with believing things that shouldn't be believed. So people who are gullible uh, tend to have a tendency to believe things, uh, take them on face value when they should be more skeptical. And then gullibility, uh, at least as I see it, uh, involves some action such as investing in a fraudulent scheme or uh, doing something that could get them in trouble, such as participating in a crime or agreeing to be interviewed uh, in a police interrogation and, and coerced into, uh, psychologically coerced into confessing a crime they may not have committed. So I guess because there, there is this sense, and it is April Fool's Day, uh, or coming up on it, um, 
yeah. where we're, we're meant to be gullible, where there's sort of a celebration of gullibility on, on April Fool's Day. And then there's also this idea that somehow naivete and gullibility may not be terrible things to be, to believe in things, even if you run the risk of being tricked. Um, so yeah. where does gullibility lie on that spectrum? Is, is, it, is it not quite the same? Is it worse? Well, it's a form of trust, and trust, as you indicated, is a good thing. The world would be a pretty grim place if we didn't trust other people. And that's kind of at the heart of gullibility, particularly around uh, uh, April Fool's Day, because it's a matter of trusting uh, uh, when perhaps we should uh, be more aware of uh, the fact that we are being tricked. (laughs) I I have a, a brief discussion of April Fool's Day in my gullibility book, uh, which I published in early 2009. I since followed it up with a book called Anatomy of Foolishness because I see gullibility as an aspect of fully broader concept of foolishness. And apparently it started in France when uh, uh, people uh, were resistant to switching over from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar. Pope Gregory in 1582 proclaimed I think at the Council of Trent that uh, they're adopting a new calendar. The main reason for the new calendar was to keep uh, Easter occurring around the same time of the year. It started showing up earlier and earlier. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of people were uh, resistant to switching over this calendar. That's and from, fr- the dates were different, right? Is that from January 1st, April 1st to January 1st? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, it was April 1st. But also... Uh, Another difference for the calendars is the year is slightly the length of the year is slightly different. <clears throat> right. But after a while, it's a kind of a creeping effect. Anyway, uh, pe- people who sometimes were in rural areas were not aware of this change. They were made fun of. There was a, a fish symbol put on their back, basically saying that they were gullible fools. And uh, in England around that time, uh, something called All Fools Day started, which uh, morphed into April Fools, and because of the fact the calendar no longer started in April, right. and North America, I think it took a little longer to catch on. Yeah, I grew up in Quebec, where it's literally called Poisson d'Avril, April Fool's Day, which is you know uh, the fish of April. So that would make sense uh, for for people having fish put on their back. What what yeah. did you discover then about about? Sorry, go ahead. In, uh, in a Quebec, also the, uh, I believe also in Ontario, there's. Uh, something called Cabbage Day or Mischief Day, which is a similar holiday, but it occurs around uh, October. So what is the, uh, what then did you find about, uh, so you looked into the history of, of April Fool's. Uh, what, how did you think, why did you think it was important to look into April Fool's and its association with gullibility? Oh, I don't think it's particularly important. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm more interested in things like uh, why people fall for scheme, scams, uh, like the Madoff scam, or why people uh, are fooled in political things, right? Such, such as what's going on in the U.S. right now. Agreed, or, or many other <laughs> many other places. It seems information is uh, is a very fluid fluid commodity these days. But I mean, the gullibility crops up in every area, including romance, being tricked into marrying the wrong person. You name it, the gullibility play, plays a role in it. So in that case, how, how do you, what is then gullible in your eyes? When you looked into it, what makes for a gullible person? 
Well, uh, I look at it uh, in terms of uh, not just uh, the person, but the whole context in which someone uh, is tricked and manipulated. There are some people who are extremely gullible, and uh, in that sense, personality enters into it. Some people are just very trusting. I happen to be a very trusting person, and on occasion, that's gotten me in trouble. But the, the situation itself contributes to it. Uh, some situations pull for a gullible response, even on people who otherwise might not be so gullible. And then uh, your state enters into it if you're inebriated or exhausted or in a lustful condition, you know, more likely to be gullible. One of the things I found interesting is you were were fascinated, not so much, because we do spend a lot of time paying attention to the trickster, not the tricked. Um, and you found it was exactly. important to look into the, to what lay behind the psychology of being tricked as opposed to pulling off a trick. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, most psych- psych- I'm a psychologist, and most of the li- literature on gullibility uh, in psychology really focuses on the, the trickster. And I'm, I'm more interested in the victim. I'm speaking with Stephen Greenspan, the author of Annals of Gullibility, Why We Are Duped and How to Avoid It. We're talking about this on the eve of April Fool's Day uh, and looking into some of the specific traits that make for, uh, that allow us to be gullible. Why sometimes being gullible isn't necessarily a bad thing, although it can lead us to bad places. After this, we'll look a little deeper into some of the ways to avoid it, because clearly April Fool's Day is not a bad day to be uh, gullible. Uh, we're meant to be, and it can be all good fun. But uh, the other 364 days of the year, it can be a bit more troublesome. We'll be back with that. I'm back now with Stephen Greenspan, author of The Annals of Gullibility, Why We Are Duped and How to Avoid It. We're talking about it, of course, on the eve of April Fool's Day, uh, a day where being gullible is all fine and dandy. We're meant to be. It's part of the fun. Um, outside of that, though, I mean, and you've mentioned this before, um, it is something that we that we need to to be quite careful of these days, given how much information we're exposed to. So how does one avoid being gullible except for on April Fool's Day? Well, um, usually there are clues, there are red flags. Uh, I can tell you about a, a time I was tricked. Sure. Uh, my wife and my youngest son came into the house one day and said that uh, at the, we lived in a neighborhood that had a communal uh, kind of a bulletin board by, by some communal mailboxes. And uh, uh, one of the nice things in this neighborhood was every year we had a hayride around Halloween and, uh, no, I'm sorry, oh, we did, but we also had an, an egg hunt around Easter. Right. And so I was in charge of the egg hunt. And they said they were signed down at the bulletin board by the mailboxes saying, that, signed by 10 kids, saying that uh, if we're going to have this Easter egg hunt, then I need to dress up in a bunny outfit, which I, I got quite upset about. No way am I going to wear a bunny outfit. You have to be kidding me. And uh, then my son said, uh, well, would you like to come look at the bulletin board? Yeah, let's go. At which point they all cracked up and said April Fool's. So, I mean, it should have been fairly obvious to me that uh, there was something fishy about this. Like, who ever heard of kids uh, signing a petition? And uh, it's not like the, I was known to that many kids in the neighborhood. 
but uh, you know, affect enters in. Uh, you and, do have uh, to sort of describe the perfect recipe, though. It has to be just believable enough. Yes. From the person delivering it has to be just believable enough, and the circumstances have to be just slightly off, but still believable. Well, it turns out we had a neighbor named Carla who uh, put them up to it because uh, she knew I was working on a book on availability, and she wanted to see if I had. And I told her I was starting to overcome my tendencies towards gullibility, so she decided to see how gullible, how non-gullible I had become. Of course, the answer was I was still pretty gullible. So, uh, yeah, I mean, my, my wife and son had never done anything like this to me. If they had, I would have been a little bit more aware. Uh, they're almost always, they're almost always red flags. And, uh, but we sort of suspend uh, our judgment when emotion enters in. In this case, emotion definitely enters in. The fact of the matter is I happen to be somebody who likes to make people happy. And I probably would have won the damn it. Uh, bunny outfit if uh, if they had if it was legitimate <laughs> the um so they're in because you've described another root of gullibility there is sort of believing in something because you want to believe in it and then there is also i think uh, the notion of being sort of willfully or willingly rather gullible where you kind of know that something might be up but you go along with it anyways because you are aiming to please yeah i mean self-delusion is a big part of it uh and people in more toxic situations, more malevolent users of, of gullibility, like a scammer, scam artist, a confidence artist, they're good psychologists, and uh, they know uh, they know that we want to believe. It's difficult for most people to say no. You you're uh, to be suspicious. Uh, so you would think that a paranoid person would be hard to fool, but in fact, they're pretty easy to fool. If, uh, if in fact you take advantage of the particular conspiracy conspiracy theory that they might have, um, one of the things I found interesting about your research, because it was sort of counterintuitive, was that we seem to think that trusting people are more gullible than suspicious or conspiratorially minded people. But in fact, you found that that was not the case. And why would that be? Well, trust is a is an aspect of it, but we're really talking about naive trust or foolish trust. Uh, there's actually, there hasn't been that much research on gullibility, but there, there was a researcher in Japan who studied it quite a bit. And he found that uh, people who are trusting, uh, uh, being fooled can be educational. Uh, it, it makes us more aware of uh, social interactions and when to be on our, our guard. So being fooled is part of being human. The key is to not repeating the same mistake all the time and also recognizing those situations that clearly are dangerous. Stephen Greenspan, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. We're tackling April Fool's Day in this hour. Steve just sent us a good good one. Would open up stuffed Oreo cookies, put some toothpaste inside, and put them in the staff room at work. Most of them got eaten. Just goes to show you. That's a good one. I got this from the kids show, Arthur. Well, inspiration is a good thing. So we've been looking into why we're gullible. And now we want to take you on a bit of a journey into what makes a good prank. Here's one of the most famous April Fool's jokes or segments. Way back in 1957, the BBC show Panorama, which is a very serious show, aired a segment on a bumper spaghetti crop in Switzerland. Here's what it sounds like. 
The past winter, one of the mildest in living memory, has had its effect in other ways as well. Most important of all, it's resulted in an exceptionally heavy spaghetti crop. The last two weeks of March are an anxious time for the spaghetti farmer. There's always the chance of a late frost, which, while not entirely ruining the crop, generally impairs the flavour and makes it difficult for him to obtain top prices in world markets. But now these dangers are over and the spaghetti harvest goes forward. So this was a prank the BBC played back in 1957. And of course, people went wild because they thought it might be true. And therein lies the beauty of a great prank. It has to be believable. And it has to come from somewhere that you might not necessarily expect, or at least be funny. So that is one of the most famous of all time. Uh, let me know if you have any good ones. 877-399-9898. That's 877-399-9898. Um, we're talking April Fool's tonight. Well, with me now is Steve Gimble. He's a professor of philosophy at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania and author of Isn't That Clever? A Philosophical Account of Humor and Comedy. Steve Gimble, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> so it's always, I mean, I think what one, you know, April Fool's is probably that one time of the year where what is funny to some is not funny to all. Um, and there is sort of a fine line between funny and not. So what is the key in, in all the research you've done? What is the key to a good gag or a good joke? <laughs> well, I, I think we first have to distinguish, and I'm a philosopher, we love to draw distinctions between practical jokes and verbal jokes. So if we're talking about verbal jokes, we can, again, draw another distinction between the quality of the joke itself and the delivery of the joke, right? Because we can have a, a good joke poorly told. So there are different virtues of uh, the intrinsic properties of the joke and then of the delivery of the joke. Equal parts, I imagine, both equally important because I've heard many a, a good joke delivered badly and many a bad joke delivered quite well over the years. Um, Indeed. So if we move to the sort of the April Fool's side of things, I suppose the same, the same applies. It has to be clever and well executed. Well, execution is definitely a key in the case of a practical joke. So what's interesting is with verbal jokes, we have so many different reasons why we might tell them. So the, the standard, of course, is just to, to get laughs, to generate mirth. But I'm a teacher, so sometimes I'll tell jokes in the classroom just to, to change the, the feel of the environment, to create a, a more casual uh, environment. Other times we could tell jokes to impress people or to insult people. But with practical jokes, there's generally just one reason, and it's to catch somebody unaware. And so there is definitely uh, a difference in approach when you're talking about telling a joke to your friends as opposed to playing a joke on your friends. And of course, on April Fool's Day, everyone is kind of expecting it. So you have to be pretty, you have to be pretty on your game to, to, get, to get one over on people. So with that being said, what would be the key then on April the 1st to, to delivering a good practical joke? Do you the think key in your, in your a estimation? really good practical joke is it has to be right on the edge of believability. So in order to really get your mark, what you have to do is set up something that's slightly unusual, but not so unusual that it's noticed. Now, I will admit I had one go awry <laughs> a number <laughs> of years all? ago. Haven't we all? <laughs> it was for precisely the reason you're saying is I figured 
it, it's April Fool's. Everyone will be expecting it. So I, you know, when I was a, a junior faculty member, untenured, <laughs> I, on April Fool's, sent an email to my department chair telling her that I had gotten a uh, job offer from a more prestigious institution, uh, one located in an urban area, and that, you know, my wife wasn't sure she wanted to relocate the family, but I just wanted to let you know. Now, I'm a well-known joker. It was April 1st. So I thought along the lines that you mentioned that they would see through it immediately. Well, I showed up to teach class and the entire department was in an uproar. They believed it. And I, I guess it's that fine line. You should, I guess you should be flattered. They all believe it. Exactly. That's a good sign. But sometimes a little too believable, right? A little too believable. Exactly. Now, fortunately, you know, they had a sense of humor about it. I went and taught my class, came back to my office, and there on my phone was a message from uh, our provost saying, we heard that you had a job offer elsewhere. We highly suggest you take it. So in the end, they bought into it. Any good ones? Any really successful ones to talk about? Well, I mean, I think the key to success, and I, I'll think of a couple, I'm sure, as, as we're talking, is the sort of reciprocity. So in, in, in the story I just told, what was fun about it was that the mark, in this case, my colleagues in the department, I knew would have a sense of humor about it. And there was a sense of reciprocity. They felt like they could try to pull a joke on me. When there's a sense of uh, a power imbalance, playing jokes can be a bit awkward. So if, if you're playing a joke on someone with less power, so I will frequently on uh, April 1st walk into the classroom and go through the motions as if we're having a pop quiz. <laughs> Sure, they appreciate now, that. Exactly. The, the wonderful thing is it works every time. Uh, but you, know, you could ask, is it fair given that I were over these people and what I'm doing is abusing that power for a laugh? Uh, so, you know, when you're talking about someone you don't know well or someone over whom you're an authority, I think then we ought to think twice about the joke, or at least be careful. I certainly don't want to say that there ought not be jokes played where there's power imbalances, but you always have to be aware that it doesn't always look the same to them as it looks to you. Yeah, you really, I guess you really have to know your audience, which is true of just about any joke. That's absolutely. Uh, Know your audience. Uh, We've been talking a lot about jokes and the impact of jokes this week haven't we after the oscars and so on um one of the th- i mean i've always found the one of the the truisms i always felt is you know don't really april fools at work is probably not always unless you know your crowd april fools at work is probably a pretty pretty sketchy idea unless it's very innocent unless it's very clever and very innocent i think that's perfectly good advice one of the things I'm curious about, you know, who's become really good at April Fool's obviously is, is the corporate world, the marketers, because of course they are, that's what they do for right. a living. But I've been interested just in, uh, about what you think of sort of the fact that April Fool's has been kind of co-opted from being, you know, putting water on someone's seat in grade school to sort of a high level marketing tactic now where you see some really clever stuff come out of corporations these days. They are legitimately funny things. It is. And what's fascinating is that marketing is 
by its very nature, rhetorical. That is, the whole purpose of marketing is to affect what you think. And so these are people who have invested huge amounts of money into psychological research, into figuring out how to affect your brain, how to get you to believe something that you hadn't believed before the commercial. And now they're using it, you know, that very manipulative technology that they usually use in order to make a buck in order to get a laugh. Now, you know, certainly a a well-played corporate uh, gag will result in lots of uh, people talking about it. And that's really what they want. So I, you know, on the one hand, you know, there's that, that, that feeling of being manipulated, but if you're going to do it, at least get a laugh out of me. Yeah. One of the things that I, I, I was looking up a Pennsylvania example, knowing where you are. And of course the big one was back in 96 when Taco Bell announced they were going to buy the Liberty Bell and rename it the Taco <laughs> Liberty Bell. <laughs> <That> was- yes. <laughs> Which, you know, in America, everything's for sale. So again, it doesn't seem that absurd. Yeah. A couple of good Canadian ones too. WestJet, uh, an airline here tends to come up with some good ones. I think back they had, uh, they had started, they put out something on April Fool's Day about a new automated food cart called Ralph, which was good. And, <laughs> and then, and then charging passengers an extra 12 bucks to use uh, sleeper cabins, which ended up being the overhead bins, right? So it's, it is a good day. Do you think it's, do you think it taints it at all though, when, when there is that sort of corporate appeal to it? Well, I think that's a fair question. And again, I think it, it depends how clever it is. I think, and that's uh, something I've long held is that if a joke is really clever, you could probably get away with something you usually can't get away with. Any parting advice for, uh, for people out there thinking of thinking who are sitting there tonight thinking, Hmm, I have this great plan for tomorrow. This is going to land super well. I'm going to be a hero either with amongst my friends within my family or, uh, at work, uh, any, any last words of caution for, or, or advice for people, uh, embarking on their prank for tomorrow? Well, if it doesn't work, at least you'll have a really great story to tell in the unemployment line. <laughs> it worked for you. You were okay. You were okay. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I guess, you know, that, that was, yeah, I'd be, I'd be, I don't know if I would try that one telling, uh, telling my boss I had gotten offered a better job because I really would worry about, about the consequences. <laughs> Do you remember back at all? I was trying to remember my, even just before we started, I was trying to remember back to my first April Fool's uh, stuff. And I would grew up in Quebec. So it was actually called Poisson d'Avril, which is the fish ah. of April, right? The old, the old word. Right. And all I can remember were the bad ones, like having people slap things on your back or put water in your seat. Or like it was all a bit, it was all <laughs> a bit kind of not cruel, but just a bit, I don't know, uh, interesting, but kind of, but never particularly funny. Well, I grew up with with a, a wonderful bunch of jokers. And so there were constant practical jokes. But one April Fool's, I'll never forget a friend of mine coming into school to find all of the numbers on his locker having been painted out black. <laughs> <laughs> the clever ones, yeah. It's, sometimes it's just the smallest ones that are the most clever. Uh, so do you have any plans? I, you, I won't make you give them away, but <clears throat> any plans for tomorrow morning? Oh, Always. I, I have two kids who are away at college, so they'll receive texts. <laughs> I won't ask. Steve Gimbel, thank you so much for your time tonight, and uh, good luck with your pranks tomorrow. I hope they land as you hope they land. <laughs> thank you. Well, for more than two years now, I think we've all been acutely aware of the risks of COVID-19. But what about the lingering impacts of contracting the virus? 
My next guest, a doctor, contracted COVID-19 in late 2020. Little was known then about what we know now about long COVID, as it's called. To this day, she copes with some of the telltale symptoms of long COVID, including heart inflammation, intense fatigue, and breathing trouble. A preliminary study in Quebec focusing on healthcare workers found that high prevalences of post-COVID health issues among healthcare workers in that province. Uh, apparently, according to a report, 6,000 out of more than 17,000 confirmed cases among healthcare workers in Quebec between July 2020 and May 2021. So those are after effects of COVID. Joining me now is Dr. Anne Berreur. She's a family and palliative care physician who is coping with the effects of long COVID. Dr. Berreur, thank you so much for being here tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you, Bonsoir. Bonsoir and bienvenue. Um, tell me a bit, I mean, I, I was reading a bit about about uh, about what you've been going through the last year, but how soon after you had recovered from your bout of COVID did you start to feel these effects of, of long COVID? Well, actually, for my part, when I was infected in late December 2020, I thought I'd be over it in 10 days and back with my team like a bit more secure that caught it. But I am among the ones who never recovered. Some people with long COVID do have slight infections and are better afterwards and progressively symptoms of long COVID set in. But for my part, uh, I was quite sick, although not hospitalized, but I never quite recovered. So it's progressively some symptoms have been a bit better. But most of it, unfortunately, is still there now. Right. So you weren't in a situation where you went back to work or started to pick up some of your old habits and so forth. You simply um, fell ill and then continued to suffer from some of those same symptoms that we know that we know well. Um, how has it impacted? I mean, what does it what does a day look like for you now, and how much has it changed since before? Well, it's changed a lot, and as you said, I've not unfortunately been back to work at all in the last year, or actually even more than a year now. I'm lucky that I was able to be uh, among patients in different research projects. So along the way, some conditions have been identified, and I've had some treatments for them. So I'm better now than I was a year ago. A year ago, I could read about five minutes at a time and then rest probably for half an hour. So I was really pacing my way through every day, doing things all by little bits at a time to try and achieve something in one day, even if that was a laundry or whatever. And progressively, I had, as I said, the luck to be a bit better with some conditions. So I'm glad that now I can read a bit more and I can also speak a bit more even though still have some trouble breathing. But every day I would say is made of trying to prioritize on what's most important to do and really understand that if I push just a little too much, I'll be out for many days. So it's that precarious. Sorry? Sorry, it's that precarious. Even if you go push just a little too hard on one day, maybe go a little, walk a little too much or, or exert too much, you know that you're going to suffer for it for, for a few days to come. Yes, actually, 
what you're, what you're describing, and I've actually been describing a bit, is what we call post-exertional malaise, which mm-hmm. is the hallmark symptoms, a symptom of a myalgic encephalomyelitis, which I'll call ME because my vocal cords really don't like those long words. Right. And it really resembles what a lot of people with long COVID are experiencing. It's an exacerbation of symptoms that can happen after like a very, very trivial effort that for some is just taking a shower or reading just a longer text. I'm lucky I can do a bit more before I reach my threshold because thresholds are like triggers are different for most people. So I'm lucky I can do a bit more than some, but if I go just a little bit over, most of the time, the day after, I'll be in bed for, as you said, a couple of days and sometimes been weeks. So you kind of learn the hard way how to pace yourself when experiences when experiencing those post-exertional malaise. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Anne Berreur from Montreal. She's a family and palliative care physician who contracted COVID back in late 2020 and is still suffering from many of the effects of it. Uh, something that we've discussed, of course, that we now call long COVID, even though the term itself seems um, maybe like a term that might need some redefining over time. But for the time being, long COVID is what we've been calling it. I'm trying to ask longer questions to give you a rest, uh, Dr. Berreur, uh, in between these questions. Uh, you're a physician. I know that as, you know, for those who aren't medically trained, the anxiety of not knowing what's happening to you can often be very difficult. You're a physician. You might have a better understanding to some extent of what you're experiencing. But how much, how anxious a year or year and a half has this been for you? Actually, that's really something. I'm sort of an anxious person in life, I would say, but Strangely, I've just been trying to go one day at a time, and I personally actually don't really understand, but I've been quite serene over the last year, knowing that something is going on that I cannot explain, where we don't have, actually, we don't have much answers yet. We do have more than when it started last year, but... I'm lucky enough that compared to some patients, and you're talking about anxiety, unfortunately, a lot of patients with long COVID have been told that all tests are normal and that, you know, doesn't seem to be anything wrong. So it might be just their anxiety and stress and just take time and it will be better. So a lot of people actually have been really anxious because you do feel that something's wrong, and it was, which is also what I'm feeling. But I've been really convinced that something's been going on, and over the last year we've learned a lot on long COVID. So I'm lucky that anxiety was not among most of my issues, but I really understand how patients being gaslighted unfortunately, too much, not from, you know, negligence most of times or doctors not wanting to understand, but mostly from just not knowing. And unfortunately, with medicine, we 
kind of want to like to know what's going on. And when faced with the uncertainty, it's sometimes hard to just say, I see that something's going on, but I just cannot tell you what's going on. And I think that's something, as a physician, I will learn even more than before having this experience in the past year. Right. That, 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 uh, I mean, I've remembered over the years, whether it was chronic fatigue syndrome, there's been all sorts of things over the years where people have said, I, there's something wrong with me. And then it's been hard to identify precisely what that is. Are you able to speak to others with, with these same, um, enduring symptoms? Are you able to speak to others and sort of commiserate or at least comfort each other or talk about what's going on, offer you, offer each other some sort of advice or some sort of support? Yes, actually, this is something that's been really comforting in the last year. I've been meeting a lot of new people and also, unfortunately, some people I already knew but who still actually have the same condition with lung COVID. So I grew closer to them and grew closer to ME community, which is the other name for chronic fatigue syndrome, which is not so appreciated sometimes because of all the stigmatization that's been around it. But so, and any community has been very helpful to understand about post-exertional malaise and how to learn and pace through every day. And so this community has been helping long COVID patients to learn and we've tied bonds quite close. And also in the long COVID community in Quebec, we do have a Facebook group where a lot of people have grouped together to share what they're feeling, to ventilate, get support, and also try to find as best information as possible with all the uncertainties that we still have to um, help each other understand and bring actually good information to doctors and physicians so they can be helped. So that's really been something very helpful for me and I guess also for many, many people. I'm speaking with Dr. Anne Berard, a family and palliative care physician in Montreal who's coping with the effects of long COVID. After this, we'll talk a bit more about what hope there is for the future in terms of diagnoses, treatments, and so forth, and how much, how far we've come over the last year. I understand there's still a lot to learn, but that we've already learned a lot more than we knew uh, when you first started suffering these these symptoms. Uh, We'll be back after this. I'm speaking with Dr. Anne Berard from Montreal. She's a family and palliative care physician uh, who has been coping with the effects of long COVID, meaning she's been off work since late 2020 as she recovers, continues to recover from the effects of the virus. Um, Dr. Berard, how much, how much more do we know now than we knew a year ago? And are there any treatments that are out there yet that are helping? Actually, we, I think we do know a lot more than a year ago. There, there were hypotheses that have been like surging all in the last year on different possible mechanisms. I guess many of them will be sometimes some of a cascade that might be able to explain. You mentioned a bit earlier that lung COVID uh, is still a mix. We oft- often call it an umbrella. I usually sort of 
try and classify it between sequelae, sequelae of complications from COVID, and then the post-viral type syndrome. So having this umbrella still makes it hard to classify like all the symptoms. And in many studies, since cohorts are still mixed up, it's sometimes hard to draw conclusions. But the more we advance and understand this, the different hypotheses are helping to uh, plan more research. On your questions of treatment, unfortunately, we're not there yet. There is yet no specific treatment for long COVID, although many conditions that come with it, if, you know, when they found you talked about I had some heart inflammation, this has been able to be treated because this is something that's known, so we know how to treat it. And there are many other symptoms that, or syndromes that can be treated. For instance, some type of dysautonomia, which is a long term to say that the nervous system is not controlling properly some functions. So a lot of people do have some tachycardia, which is the heart racing when they would stand up at any moment. We call it post. I've got a little brain fog here. Post uh, postural I would, I would, orthostatic tachycardia right. syndrome. I'm sorry, we call it POTS. That's all right. You're right. And so this is something we already know a bit more about. So there are treatments that can help those symptoms on an everyday basis and really better up the quality of life. So even though yet we're not able to treat directly the long COVID, which I really hope we will be in the, in the future as close as possible, we can still understand many things going on around and help patients. But this is through sometimes complex evaluations which are not so accessible yet. So I really hope that we do have some care pathways to help patients more until we have like a definite cure. Yeah, I was going to ask you uh, as a last question, Dr. Brera, just what is it now? You're, obviously, things have changed a lot. What are you, are you still, do you must remain hopeful that this will, that you'll find a certain sense of, of normalcy, or at least that you'll, you'll recover some of what has been lost, if I can put it that way? Yes, definitely. I understand that with some of the symptoms in the post-viral syndromes, there are uh, people who unfortunately have been sick for years, decades, and those syndromes have been neglected by research for too long. But seeing what's been happening with long COVID still gives me hope that research will sort of do giant pace in the last, in the next months, years, so we can pretty much maybe all together try and find some cures and to, yes, give some normalcy back, some capacities back. I'd like to have my full brain again and just not, you know, trip over, trip over pots, which is such an easy word normally for me. But yes, I do still have hope 
And I would say I also have hope that people will understand all the risks related to COVID and that there are ways to reduce the risk of transmission, understanding that it's airborne and how to prevent it, because it's not just a flu for so many people, and this has to be understood. So as much as I want treatment for myself and all other long haulers, I really hope people gather how COVID can be a long-term issue for so many people and understand that everyone should really try not to catch it. Dr. Pereira, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for shedding light on this on this issue. I appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you for talking about it. I think it's how we're going to have more people understand. Thank you. This hour, we're taking a deeper look into the issue of long COVID. We just spoke to Dr. Anne Berard, a family and palliative care physician in Montreal who is coping with the effects of long COVID after uh, contracting COVID-19 back in late 2020. She's still having trouble breathing. She's still having trouble, trouble walking. Uh, or at least trouble breathing, so which prevents her from going on long walks. She has brain fog, all the different symptoms we've been hearing about. My next guest says that we need to be prepared as a country for a post-pandemic pandemic, she calls it, involving those who will suffer from the lingering effects of COVID-19. And she's calling for a concerted effort at establishing special government-funded clinics across this country that can provide care and conduct research on long covid Joining me now from Toronto is Dr. Angela Chung. She's a senior physician scientist with the University Health Network. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Ben. When it comes to long COVID, I guess it's very much still um, a work in progress in trying to understand and define exactly what it is and how to treat it. Uh, that's correct. Um, it is a evolving science. And there's many symptoms uh, that we are all lumping into long COVID. And, um, you know, uh, some patients have it mild, some patients have it quite severe, uh, and people present differently as well. And so uh, there is quite a wide spectrum. What sort of uh, ailments, so to speak, are you seeing when it comes to long COVID? And I gather, as you've mentioned, there is a wide spectrum from relatively minor to to fairly acute. Yeah. So I would say that the top five symptoms are fatigue, uh, brain fog, shortness of breath uh, with exertion, uh, tachycardia, or what we call fast heart rate, or I should say inappropriate fast heart rate, and sleep disturbances. Um, and, and to that, those five, I would add, you know, there are other symptoms, um, sort of anxiety and depression um, about how they are. Um, it's kind of like patients receiving a diagnosis of cancer and wondering, you know, is it going to go away? Um, so there's a, a fair bit of mental health issues uh, around long COVID as well. I know you've been looking into this and the numbers aren't exactly defined, but what percentage of people who contract COVID-19 uh, develop symptoms of long COVID? We think at least 10%, but it can be as high as 50%. And my estimate is that it's somewhere in between, um, you know, closer to like the 30% mark. But 
it really depends on how you're defining it. Do you define it as someone having one residual symptom? Um, say, for example, someone who can't um, smell or taste perfectly. Um, or you are defining it as, you know, someone who are so it's so debilitated that they can't get out of bed and can't do the usual activities, even taking a shower. Has there been, have you noticed any change um, in our ability to treat those with long COVID given the metal, many medical advances we've seen in treating or at least uh, protecting against COVID over the last two years? I think our concentration has been sort of putting out the fire, um, if you allow me to say that, um, uh, meaning we're concentrating on like the acutely ill patients who are hospitalized and trying to keep them alive and, um, uh, and you know, uh, and keeping the waves um, going into the hospital sort of low. Um, we have spent less time on um, really trying to learn about long COVID and what can help long COVID. Now, the, the fortunate thing is um, this is not the first post-viral syndrome. So there are other post-viral syndromes that we're learning from. And I have to say that the, um, the MECFS group, um, so the myalgia encephalitis chronic fatigue syndrome group has been very helpful in, um, you know, helping uh, healthcare providers and others in terms of, uh, you know, tr- uh, sharing what works for them. And some of those techniques have worked for long COVID as well. What would those be? Uh, resting and pacing. So um, I teach patients about uh, having like a pot of energy each day. Um, they can't, you know, go into deficit um, and um, uh, and not overexerting themselves and thinking of that pot of energy as not only physical, but cognitive and also emotional. So all the, you know, if someone has a lot of anxiety, um, uh, that will dip into that pot of energy. And so often what happens, uh, a common trajectory is that, you know, someone feels better from the acute COVID, they uh, go back to their usual activities, um, say, uh, you know, running three times a week um, and going back to work full time. And then they crash. Um, They have a flare um, of all their symptoms again. Um, and, uh, and, uh, when they rest and recover, they feel better. And then it's the cycle sort of, it's like a roller coaster. Um, if people can actually keep their, um, you know, these, uh, relapses or flare ups, um, uh, sort of in control, then they do recover and, uh, things will get better over time. Um, but if people um, allow these sort of, you know, um, flare-ups to happen a lot, then it's very disruptive uh, to their life um, and and their quality of life. For the healthcare system itself, I know, obviously, we know just how overwhelmed the entire system has been by COVID itself. Where are we at in terms of bracing for understanding what the impact will be for those who suffer from these longer-term effects of COVID-19? Um, I call it the post-pandemic pandemic. Um, I, I think uh, 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 family physicians are seeing 
patients with long COVID right now. Um, I think many specialists are seeing uh, cases as well. Um, and uh, the numbers are increasing um, in terms of patients seeking care. Um, so, uh, you know, yes, we have been concentrating on the acute care. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, at least in Ontario, uh, we are seeing our, our sixth wave. And, um, yeah, and in my hospital, uh, it, there's a call out for uh, physicians doing COVID care again on the acute care teams. And so um, we seem to not be able to get out of this, put out the fire mode. I was going to say, and, and that maybe that's taking a step in a different direction, but we are seeing uh, in the last little while, I, I understand just anecdotally in my own life, I've been seeing a, a, quite a significant increase in people testing positive for COVID. Clearly you're seeing that uh, from a healthcare perspective as well. Yes. And, um, you know, I know that we're all sick and tired of it (laughs) and that uh, we would uh, love for COVID to leave. Um, But the reality is COVID is still here. And so it's really important that people, you know, vaccinate, uh, do your booster shots if you can, uh, or if you're at high risk. And um, also masking. I think I was at a grocery store recently um, and a third of the people in the grocery store were not masked and we know what works, right? We don't really need a mandate um, to wear a mask. It's kind of like if it's raining, you should bring an umbrella. Good point. Um, When we look at long COVID then, how would we, and I'll ask you this when we come back, uh, but how are we to then prepare for the post-pandemic pandemic, do you think? I would like to see really a set of um, specialty clinics around the country that are connected and that we share information and what we learn and um, so that we can be sort of the, uh, sort of what best, best practice is like. And, um, and, and try to educate our primary care providers um, on sort of what works and what um, doesn't work. So um, often, um, sometimes physicians um, are um, telling patients, uh, you should go get up and you should sort of, you know, push yourself and uh, to do um, uh, exercises and other things. And, often that will put people sort of in uh, relapses. And um, and so I think it's important to know sort of like what post-COVID condition is and what we can uh, do to make people feel better. I'm speaking with Dr. Angela Chung, a senior physician scientist with the University Health, Health Network in Toronto. We're talking about uh, the impacts of long COVID more broadly across the healthcare network or what Dr. Chung refers to as the post-pandemic pandemic. pandemic. And while we're still dealing with acute outbreaks of the pandemic itself, it is time, she says, to look forward to what we may have to do to treat those who suffer from longer-term impacts of COVID-19. When we come back, we'll talk briefly just about, um, about where we need to set up, and we've been talking about it already, but really how we need to prepare for this, uh, because I don't think we fully know how many people will suffer from longer term effects, and it will be important that the information is available so we can prepare properly. That's after this. 
I'm back with Dr. Angela Chung, a senior physician scientist with the University Health Network in Toronto. We're talking about the impacts of long COVID, something uh, not fully understood just yet, specifically as we deal with the with yet another outbreak of COVID itself. Um, Dr. Chung, I, I was going to ask a bit about the stigma because you mentioned earlier sort of acute uh, fatigue syndrome. I'm going to get the name of that incorrect, but you know, there's always been a certain uh, misunderstanding around longer term impacts of something like COVID-19. Are you seeing that with your patients as well, that there's, there is sort of maybe a certain lack of belief that they are suffering what they are, what they say they're suffering or what they feel they're suffering? Yes. I think there is definitely um, uh, that. Um, The problem is there's no tests that you can do um, to prove that you have long COVID. Um, we're still sort of in the midst of looking at biomarkers and other things, but currently really there's no, you know, it's not like a um, troponin test for heart attacks. Um, uh, There's no biomarker that you can do to say, aha, you have long COVID. Um, So, and, and the other, so that's one issue. The other issue is that um, often the symptoms are very vague. And um, when you uh, do your usual testing, um, you may not see anything. So say, for example, someone actually has uh, inappropriate sinus tachycardia, um, uh, which means fast heart rate. Um, But when you do the echocardiogram or ECG or various cardiac tests, you don't see anything. Um, It doesn't mean that the patient doesn't have it. Um, We are just not doing the right tests. And so uh, the Kankoff Consortium has, um, you know, various studies going on. And uh, we have looked at brain fog with imaging. We've looked at um, cardiac stuff as well. And we can see differences between those who are normal and those who are not, who are complaining of these symptoms. The problem is all these are research protocols and they're not widely available tests. And um, so that's, those are some of the hurdles that we have to um, go through. So obviously much more elusive uh, to figure out than COVID itself. Uh, The the numbers that you shared earlier about, you know, between 10 and 50%, uh, even on the low end, that is a staggering number of people. If you talk about those people needing uh, continued care within our healthcare system. Yes. And so like there have been more than 3.4 million people in Canada who got COVID. If we think 10% um, has long COVID, that's like 340 something thousand uh, just there. And we know that the Canadian official numbers were based on PCR testing. So that number is a lot higher um, for those who didn't have a chance to get tested. Uh, or they did a rapid antigen tests, uh, which are widely available now, and didn't bother uh, or, you know, can't access a PCR test. And so, um, you know, I think that it's more than 350,000 people, um, you know, uh, with this problem. And so I think employers, insurance, um, you know, uh, insurance companies and other people need to be aware that there's this population that is not well. And will continue to be. On, I, I, what I did want to ask you, I know there are a lot of people out there who 
who may think or may not know whether they've even ever had COVID uh, because their symptoms were mild, for instance, or they didn't test for it. Is it? Do we understand yet whether someone who may not even have ever realized they had COVID then starts suffering some of these symptoms of long COVID? Um, that's the really tricky part. What we do know is that those who have acute symptoms were more likely to have long COVID. So those who were asymptomatic um, are less likely to have long COVID. And those who have greater than five symptoms in the acute phase are more likely to have long COVID later as well. And so, you know, the sicker that you are, the higher chance that you can get long COVID, basically. And have we seen any differences between the different variants in terms of their impact on the likelihood that you will have these lingering effects? It is still a little bit early to tell in terms of um, uh, Omicron uh, versus the others. Um, But a lot of the long COVID patients that we've been seeing are from the first wave. But it may not be just purely because of the variant per se, because there's also vaccination. So we know that vaccination will decrease the risk of long COVID. Um, and there's also other treatments in the acute phase. So for someone who's hospitalized, uh, initially, we didn't really have much to offer. But currently, we have monoclonal antibodies, we have steroids, we have antiviral medications, we have a whole bunch of stuff uh, that we're giving to the acutely ill patients who are, who are hospitalized. And so it's not really comparing apples to apples. Um, there's many factors. Um, and whether it's a difference in variance or all these other factors as well. When you look ahead now, then to the next six months, the next year, um, what would you like to see done by different health authorities across the country to ensure that we are prepared, at least to some extent, to deal with this post-pandemic pandemic? So I do see that um, uh, BC um, has uh, COVID clinics that are supported by the government. In Ontario, we don't. Um, And I'm not sure that in other jurisdictions that there are clinics like that. And I would like to see that these clinics are connected to each other so that we can be, um, you know, communicating and, uh, you know, really trying to um, translate research findings to um, actions um, in, in terms of changing the care of our patients in a very rapid uh, cycles, um, because as I told you, um, information is coming out every day. And so I would like to use what we learned um, to be treating patients with long COVID. Dr. Angela Chung, thank you so much for your time tonight and your insight. I appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. Thank you.